Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. this new series last week about infamous women, women who are notorious for some pretty bad things when they might or might not even deserve to be known for these things. We started with Mary Magdalene, and hopefully you had an opportunity to see the difference between what the scriptures actually say about Mary versus what has been said about her. And today, though, we're going to go in the other direction. We're going to talk about a woman who did some really bad things. We're going to talk about Jezebel. And if you've grown up somewhere in the South or the Deep South, you've probably heard that term thrown around. Um, You might have seen the Betty Davis movie, but this is a little different. This is the namesake of Jezebel, and Jezebel used kind of as a metaphor is for a scheming woman, a woman who is up to no good. And here, um, sometimes in this country, we add to that this kind of sexualized sin as well. But what we'll find is that That was actually not part of Jezebel's problem. She had problems, but that wasn't one of them. But like Mary Magdalene, there seems to be this desire to kind of layer that on to issues. But Jezebel, if you haven't had an opportunity to explore who she was, was actually a Phoenician princess. She came from a very successful monarchy. Her father was one of the kings of Phoenicia. Now, the Phoenicians were a grouping of city-states, and each one was overruled by someone who liked to call themselves a king. So it was actually an oligarchy of kings. And the Phoenicians had enjoyed vast success, not necessarily militarily, but economically. They had mastered sailing the seas, and they were able to have trade routes. They were able to find ways to get goods from Europe and Africa into the Middle East, and they were constantly ferrying those things and taking their cut. And so they had grown very successful. Their material worth had climbed, their uh, status and their power in the world was on the rise. And so they were considered a very high-class people. They were very cosmopolitan. And then you had this little kingdom called Israel. And at this point in Israel's history, they are no longer the United Kingdom. That fell apart after Solomon died. Uh, Solomon's son will inherit only the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, and you'll get new kings in the north in what is called Israel. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jerusalem is in Judah. And you have this period of time where they're trying to find their new identity. They're no longer just God's people in the promised land, so who are we? Now, in the south, they kind of turn more to Jerusalem and their religiosity, and they're focusing on that, what's a lot easier with Jerusalem right there. And in the north, they're in the middle of a trade route, a land trade route. Their capital of Samaria is a place where goods and people are constantly coming in and going out. And so they're exposed to different cultures and different technology and the different ways in which you can make some money, some material wealth. And so they have been kind of yearning for that. They've been encountering uh, encountering the Egyptians. They are encountering a people who will eventually become Assyria. They are encountering people who are 
having incredible worldly success, and they want a piece of that too. So when King Ahab married Jezebel, he married up, she married down. But the idea was that she would bring some of the gifts of the Phoenician culture and religion to the northern kingdom of Israel and help them catch up, right? Help them get back on the path because they, they've been isolated for so long. They don't really know what they're doing. They're worshiping this backwards way. They don't understand what's going on. And so she will bring with her not just her clothing and her servants. She will bring with her her prophets and her priests from her religion. The Phoenicians were continuing to practice a Canaanite worship that centered around two specific deities. The first was a sky god like our God, the father of the Old Testament, whose Hebrew name is Yahweh. And so Yahweh is a sky god, uh, a sky god who appears in storms, lots of thunder and lightning, sends the rains, withholds the rains. This power over storm and sky is typical of our God of the um, Old Testament portrayed there. But what we find is that that's not the only god that's on the menu. And so Jezebel brings Baal. Baal is especially offensive to Yahweh. Yahweh is a sky god, so is Baal. Yahweh is presented in the te tetragrammaton uh, of the letters that you often see in your English translated Bible as capital L and small cap O-R-D. That represents Yahweh. And so we often read that as Lord. Well, Baal actually means Lord. So you can start to see that more and more, it's like they're competing with each other. And if there's one thing that Yahweh really, really, really doesn't like, it's golden calves. See Exodus, doesn't like that. One of the ways that they always portray Baal, human body, head of a bull, and it's gold. All the kinds of things that probably bring up PTSD for God. And so Baal is constantly being talked about now with Jezebel bringing Baal down. Her people worship Baal because as a sky god, it's believed that he will send the rains. Do you want your crops to grow? Do you want to have all the wadis into flowing rivers so that your herds and your flocks have something to drink? Then we need to talk to Baal. But the problem with Baal worship is that it is bloody. It's not just animal sacrifice, which the Israelites did for Yahweh. When things got desperate, they sacrificed their children. Hence, there are multiple prophets who proclaim that that is evil. God didn't give you children to sacrifice them. That's not what God wants. And so people in their desperation to be successful in their jobs and in their careers were sacrificing their children like they were a lamb or a goat. And that's abhorrent to God. Maybe that's why Jesus spends so much time going, stop looking at them as a means to an end and see how beautiful they are. See that you must become like this if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spends a lot of time trying to get people to see children differently. And this is one of the reasons that for a long time, people saw them as a commodity rather than a treasure. And so Baal worship is definitely problematic for Yahweh worshipers. Definitely a problem because it starts to sound too much like ours, but it's definitely not. And then Baal doesn't want to be a perpetual bachelor like Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't want roommates. 
Yahweh doesn't want you to move any other things in here. This is my space and I'm good. He likes it kind of sparsely decorated. Don't put a lot of extra stuff in the Holy of Holies. Tells you exactly what incense to use and how to do your worship because Yahweh kind of knows how Yahweh wants things. You ever had somebody like that in your life? Don't touch that. I've got it just the way I want it. It's kind of Yahweh. But what happens is when Jezebel brings down her worship and her priests to officiate the worship, they start moving Baal in with Yahweh. And Yahweh is thinking, I did not go to college to be in a dorm. I do not want roommates. And if that weren't bad enough, Baal doesn't go anywhere by Baal's self. Baal always has an Asherah. Because if you have a male sky god, you need a female earth god to even out the fertility. And so she is a fertility goddess. And oftentimes, people were praying to both, may the heavens open up with water, and may the earth be fruitful and abundant. May our vineyards and our orchards, our fields, may they overflow with fruitfulness. And so you were trying to appease both of them so that they would work together for you. Now, Asherah was, because she's an earth goddess, oftentimes her things were not made out of stone, they were made out of wood. So you would have like a pole or a column that they would carve to look like Asherah. And so not only did Yahweh now have one roommate he didn't want, now he's got her too. And three is not the kind of company that Yahweh wanted. And if worship for Baal wasn't abhorrent enough to Yahweh, the way they worship Asherah is horrific too. As a fertility goddess, oftentimes she was accompanied by temple prostitution, engaging in worship of a sexualized nature in order to cajole her into being fruitful. Now, Yahweh was not in favor of sacrificing your children, and Yahweh was certainly not in favor of you going to worship and committing adultery or fornicating or doing any kind of sexual sin in order to get the earth to yield its fruit completely against what Yahweh wanted for Yahweh's people. And so there's already this battle that's happening in the north. Now, what I read to you was after the big title bout. Unfortunately, I didn't read to you the huge one-on-one, -on -one, the heavyweight title match between Elijah representing Yahweh and 450 prophets and priests of Baal and Asherah who have gathered on Mount Carmel to have it out to be the world champion of deities. And when they gathered there, you had 450 people on this side, and you had just little old Elijah over here. And Elijah and the prophets and the priests of Baal and Asherah had agreed on how they were going to do this. We're going to do everything the same way, right? We're each going to get a bull. We're going to cut up that bull. We're going to put it up on a pyre, and we're going to dig a trench around it. And we are going to not light it on fire, but ask our God to do so. We'll just stand back. And whichever god can light that one on fire wins. Seems simple enough. So the prophets and priests of Baal and Asherah go first. And they start calling and petitioning and cajoling and praying. And that doesn't work. And so they start bloodletting, trying to entice them with their blood. And Elijah's watching all of this absolutely mortified. And I wish we could read it in Hebrew because there's this moment that's rather snarky where Elijah says, maybe he's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. But eventually it's clear that nothing is going to happen. So Elijah decides to show God's people what God can do. And so he saturates his pyre completely 
with water, so much so that it actually fills the trench around it. I mean, there's this little moat now around the offering. And Elijah prays to God and says, show them, Lord, show your people that you are the God of Israel. Boom, it's incinerated. The fire comes down and not only, and I've met quite a number of Boy Scouts who will go, that's not how to start a fire. Do not soak your wood. But instead, God not only can light what should not be lit, but God is able to actually drink up all the water, sucks up all the water, dry as a bone. It's amazing what God was able to do. And at the conclusion of that, they did what a lot of people like to do to celebrate in the Old Testament. They decided to kill all the 450 prophets of Asherah and Baal. And so that's where our story picks up. Now, Ahab, I love this. This is the depiction of Ahab. He's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he says to Jezebel, honey, a little thing happened, and you know all those people you brought with you? Um, They're dead. It's Elijah's fault, but they're dead. And Jezebel's response is so terrifying to Elijah. This is Elijah. He just beat 450 competitors. Just beat them. But Jezebel scares him. All she has to do is this. She sends a messenger to say to him, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. This time tomorrow, you're dead. That's what she said. You're dead. I will find you. Notice Ahab didn't say he was going to do it. He's not trying to get in a fight with Elijah. He doesn't like Elijah. Elijah always comes and starts trouble. Elijah shows up and is like, you will have no rain until I say so. And Ahab's like, whatever. And then there's no rain. And then at one point they're like, sire, you've got to call Elijah back. We're like starving and there's no water and this is very bad, famine. And he's like, I don't like him. I'm not calling him. Call somebody else. Well, there's nobody else to call because you killed them all. And so you have to deal with Elijah. Elijah and Ahab, they can deal with each other. Elijah doesn't want to deal with Jezebel. She was powerful and intimidating. And she was able to bring her power and authority from her home country down there to this little kingdom in Israel. And she was so terrifying that Elijah would rather be dead than wait for her to come. So that's what he does. He abandons his servant and he flees into the wilderness. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, the last place you want to go is the wilderness. Bad things happen there. Mostly not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a theme. It's not a good thing. But he would rather go and starve and suffer dehydration than be accountable to Jezebel. And so he runs into the desert and he has the experience with the angel, not once but twice. And then he gets to this place up on Mount Horeb, which, by the way, the other name for that mountain is Sinai. He's gone back to Mount Sinai, the same place where God came down in a storm cloud and lightning and thunder and gave the covenant to God's people. We've come back to the beginning. And he's there, and God says, why are you here? Why are you here? And Elijah says, she's coming to kill me. You do it first. I'd rather you kill me than her. I'd rather face death at the hands of Yahweh than wait for Jezebel to come over here and kill me. And God's like, no, that's not happening. That's not happening. But that's how fearful he is of her. He's terrified of her. Her power and her threats are real. 
And Jezebel's not done. Elijah is going to get his permanent retirement. It's coming. Um, we should all be so lucky to retire in a chariot of fire that takes us up to heaven. But Elijah will get that. But he's got some things he's got to do. He's got to crown a new king. He's got to call a new prophet to come after him. So he's got some work to do before God will let him retire. But what we find is that this is a moment where he's confessing how fearful he is of her. Now, what she's done is horrible enough. I mean, she has taken God's people and she has led them away from God. She has offered them a new deity or deities to worship and she has convoluted the worship of Yahweh. She has allowed people to practice things that are abhorrent and explicitly condemned in scripture. You are not to sacrifice your children. You are not to engage in temple prostitution. These are not things that you should be doing. You're just layering on the sin here. Stop doing this. And yet, the lure of success is so strong that God's people continually turn back to it. They continually go, you know what, I'm going to go worship Yahweh, and then maybe we'll just put a little Asherah pole. You know, like a little Christmas tree, just a little one. Not a big one, just a little one. And they can't stop. There's actually a depiction that was carved into the side of a wall in the Middle East of Yahweh and his Asherah. It's quite an interesting little pair here. You've got like this big scary God, and then you've got this little, 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 little female thing over here. Yeah, because, you know, you don't want to make them equal, so she's like smaller. But Jezebel is guilty of leading God's people astray. Not because she thought to herself, how can I make God's people fail? That's not it at all. She came from a different people. She came from a different time. Now, that doesn't make what she was doing okay by any means. And Ahab should have been like, um, yeah, we kind of have a rule here. We don't make Yahweh angry because we signed a covenant in our hearts and with our bodies, and we really shouldn't do that. But instead, he's like, you know what? Those Phoenicians, they really got it well. I'm in. What do we got to do? And so they continually lead God's people away. Now, throughout the, the Old Testament and even the New Testament, what we find is repeatedly the leaders of God's people, from the priests to the prophets to the elders to the monarchs, so many of them were shepherds. You ever notice that? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, shepherds. Moses, second career shepherd third career prophet. Elijah and Elisha have that background. You start to notice that there's this overrunning theme. What was David doing before he slayed the giant? Keeping his father's flocks. So there's this idea that God is calling these people to continue to gather in the flock that they might stay in the fold and worship God. But instead, they're trying to show them something else to do. Hey, let's, let's go over here and try this. We don't need to make Jezebel's sin any worse than it is. It's bad enough. But what we've ended up doing is we've fallen into something that humans kind of do. Have you ever let someone else's sin compel you to sin? And I'm not talking about, you know, if everybody went and sinned over there, like would you go to the conversation your parents have with you? I'm talking about somebody's sin hurts you so bad that you just feel the need to hurt them back and sin too that perpetual cycle of sinning against each other. Hence, God was like, I will take care of the vengeance. I don't need you doing that. I will handle that. Leave that to me. Because you know that Jezebel and Jesus are going to have a talk. You know that. Now, I have no doubt that when they do, Elijah's going to be like, oh, and mention the thing where she said she was going to kill me. 
Tell her about that one. Yeah, she wanted to kill me. I have no doubt that there are people that want to be there to watch it, but it's ultimately God's decision what will happen to Jezebel. We don't need to mess with that. We're too busy messing with our own consequences. We're too busy worrying about what Jesus is going to be saying to us, right? She is the female equivalent in some ways to King David. King David came from this bright and beautiful beginning, was able to soothe the troubled spirit of King Saul, was able to take down the giant, was able to do all these wonderful things, and then he didn't go out to war in the spring, and instead he saw a beautiful woman and he took her, he stole her. Stole her from Uriah, took Bathsheba. And then when he realized what he had done, he decided to do what everybody wants to do. I'm going to hide it. We'll cover it up. And so he started to lie and scheme. And then he decided that the only way he was going to get away with this was to make sure that Uriah was dead. And so he schemed so that Uriah would die. And he did. Now, Jezebel's going to do the same thing, because one day her husband, who I don't know if you've noticed this, Ahab doesn't have the backbone of a cedar. He goes, oh, that little piece of land over there, that little vineyard, it would be so nice to have it for an herb garden. And Jezebel says, you're the king, go take the land. He goes, I can't, Naboth owns the land, and he won't give it to me, I asked. She's like, do you want the land? He's like, I want the land. Okay, fine, I'll get you the land. So she does. She schemes, and she writes a letter, and she ends up having Naboth stoned to death, and she goes, he's dead. There's your vineyard. Have at it. I've worked it. You can have it now. But the problem is that this is only for their own good. They're willing to throw life away for their own benefit, and that's not who we're called to be. That was never part of the 613 commandments. Maybe it didn't make the cut at 614, but I doubt it. The idea that you can hurt somebody else if it's for your own benefit. That's not part of the Bible. That was part of the way of life back then, maybe still now. But it, it wasn't part of what God was calling God's people to be and do. And so what you end up finding here is that Jezebel was very much a worldly figure. But she wasn't a servant of God. In fact, she was actually becoming a barrier to God and God's people. She was creating a chasm. She was putting obstacles in their way. It was hard to focus on Yahweh because I'm so distracted by this shiny, bull-headed man thing. And instead, instead of doing what leaders were called to do, which is to say, come back here, she said, let me show you a better option. Let me show you a new people to be. But they weren't called to be just anybody. They were called to be God's people. And not everybody could be an Israelite of God's people. That was a very special role, still is. And so Jezebel continues to be this person whose biggest sin is getting between God and God's people. That's enough. But when we attach to it and we sexualize her sin, I mean, so many people thought Jezebel was a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. We don't have that recorded. But she made God really angry. She makes it into Revelation. Let me tell you, you really got to be, it's like the FBI's 10 most wanted list. If you make it into Revelation, she's there. She's there. And so, yeah, there's probably going to be a conversation. But you know what? There's going to be a conversation between all of us and Jesus. We don't have to worry about everybody else's conversation because we're going to have to have our own. 
Even David. Can you imagine David talking to Jesus? David saying, you know, I did, I did some things wrong. I, I know that. I did some things wrong. Uriah's over here going, yeah, tell him about my wife. You don't have to do that. God knows. God knows. But instead of really focusing on what the problem was, we allowed the sensationalism of adding to the sin, villainizing her further, and then Jezebel becomes this sexualized enemy rather than one whose biggest problem was impeding worship of God. You know, the prophets use the worship of other deities as adultery. That's the metaphor they describe. When you are worshiping Baal and Asherah or Dagon or anybody else that you're worshiping, you are cheating on God. And God is monogamous with you. You should be monogamous with God. But the people of Israel, they weren't looking for monogamy. They were looking for material wealth. They wanted the gold and the glitter. They wanted the power and the authority. They wanted the recognition of being a somebody in a world where they felt like nobodies. And by building up this entire extra sin that didn't even happen on Jezebel, we've detracted from the real problem. That's why so many people think Jezebel is a, a floozy. That's why they think of her as a sexually immoral woman. It's not true at all. Her sin was worse. It caused so much more pain and agony. She put the prophets to the sword. And think about how many voices were silenced that would have called the people home. So we are a people who need to recognize that. It's so tempting to add. It's so tempting to add. But as the scriptures say, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us fail. All of us sin. And when you are trying to climb out of the pit of sin, do you really want people throwing more dirt on top of you? You'll never get out. You'll never get out onto that promised land and find redemption. We can't keep doing that to each other. And we're still doing it thousands of years later to Jezebel. Now, don't get me wrong. She's not somebody that we should be t talking to the kids about at vacation Bible school. Hey, guess what? Today we're going to talk about Jezebel. She's a viable option. No, she's not. We're not talking about Jezebel. We're not going to get there. It's kind of hard to do Mount Carmel and talk about slaughtering a bunch of people and being like, let's talk about this today in, in children's church. We're not going to do that. But we as adults need to talk about it. Because how many times have you felt the lure away from God to something else? We know what that's like. You know when you think to yourself, oh, I just really don't want to go. Or, oh, you know, there's so many other things that we could be spending our money on or places that we could be. That's the spirit of Jezebel. We could be doing other things and profiting from them. If you'll just pay attention to Baal. And so instead of adding on to that, we need to call it what it is. There's nothing evil with saying, you know what, that's wrong. We can't lead people astray. Can't be telling people to worship other gods. No, that's, I, I think that's pretty much one and two. I am a jealous God. You will have no other gods before me. Don't make yourself any graven images. There's all kinds of things that the Bible is trying to tell you. Focus on me, says God, right here. 
and I will lead you home. But you don't need other people adding to your rucksack. When I was in seminary, I did a stent for large caliber ammunition. We made 120 millimeter shells for the Abrams tank. I was like an administrative assistant. I wasn't actually making shells. But they were about this tall, and they were all lined up in front of my desk, and one of my duties was handling all the administrative stuff, not only for the entire team, but also for the lieutenant colonel who was over large caliber ammunition. And so as I was helping him one day, he was telling me about his latest trip back. Now he was going through a regular airport, I think it was somewhere in Texas, and he had been a, a ranger, and he was also a tanker, and now he was at this place where he was helping to design the munitions that would be part of tanks moving forward. And he was going through this airport, like you and I might, but then he noticed there were a lot of soldiers. You know, every now and then, you go through the airport and you see military. And there they were, and they were all young guys, and apparently they, had, they were going to ranger school. And he saw them, and, and there's this thing that you have to do in the military where, like, the most senior officer has to, like, speak to everybody, give them a little bit of wisdom, I guess. And so he looked around and he saw, you know, he's the closest thing to a full bird, it's him. And so he looked at them and he was talking to them and he said, you know, what's been the hardest thing? And they said, oh man, when we were in basic training, we had a friend who hurt himself in basic training, but he didn't want to go home, he wanted to push through. And they have these giant plates and the two plates, right, because they're supposed to be able to stop munitions that are coming to kill you. There's a plate in the front, and there's a plate in the back, and they weigh over 50 pounds. 50 pounds. On top of everything else you're carrying. And so what happened was, one of the friends said, give me your plates. I'll carry them for you. Give me your plates. And when he was telling me the story, he goes, you know, I thought I was going to tell them something, but I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this nonstop since they told me that life is about finding wet times when you need to carry someone else's plates Amen. so that they don't fall behind and they don't give up. Jezebel wasn't interested in carrying other people's plates. She was putting plates on their back. Right. Here's child sacrifice. Here's temple prostitution. Here's having another God before God. Here is diverting your attention from the commandments. Here is forsaking your covenant. She just kept layering on the plates. But as servants of Jesus, our job is to say, let me carry that for you. Amen. You want me to go one mile? I'll go two. Amen. That's who we're called to be. We don't need to add plates onto somebody else. Right. We need to figure out how they can stand up tall once more and embrace God's grace. May we be those people and avoid the temptation to villainize, but instead to focus on bringing everyone back to God. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.